get started. <clears throat> we look to you again this morning. We are not sufficient for these things. And so we acknowledge our dependence on you, the first thing. And we say, Holy Spirit, teach us. You are a teacher. And, and we pray, Lord, knowing, Spirit of God, that one of your primary tasks is to give glory to Jesus, to help us to see Christ exalted. So we pray, Spirit of God, glorify Jesus. Open our eyes to see the wonders of our Savior's work, work and his offices as our Redeemer. We want to be caught up in wonder and awe because you are a glorious God. Lord Jesus, display your glory to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we get started, let me just share a word about the importance of this doctrine. Uh, the Bible is a story about God's redemption. It's a story about God displaying his glory in both merciful salvation and justice on evil. God is going to display that glory, both his mercy and his justice, and you can see that that is the storyline of the Bible because that's where the Bible lands. In the book of Revelation, you see this high and exalted Lord who is Lord over everything and every knee is bowing before him. And so that's what the story is all about, but that whole story turns on a central figure, and the central figure of the Bible from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent, all the way to the very end of the book of Revelation, the central figure on, which, on whom that whole redemptive story turns is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And so core doctrines, the, the doctrines that are closest to the gospel, cluster and gather around the doctrines of the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. Our faith really centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is incidentally why we're called Christians and not merely Godians. We're called Christians. We're named. Our name is taken from the second person of the Trinity. One way to illustrate this would be simply to think about the proverbial plane crash. I know it's morbid, but the proverbial plane crash. If you are at 30,000 feet and they announce that the engines have gone out and you have five minutes before your descent meets the ground, then what you're going to do, hopefully, is you're going to start sharing with those around you the critical message of salvation. And my suggestion would be to get to Jesus as quickly as you can because that's where, that's where it's all at. I mean, getting to Jesus, you're not going to have time to get into church government polity. You're not going to have time to get into all of that, a definition of prayer. As important as all those things are, you have to get to Christ, who he was, and the cross, and what that did, and the resurrection, and you're good to go. If they bel- because Romans 10 makes it very clear that if they, on their way down from 30,000 feet, confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. Three minutes from the ground, they will be saved. So these are, these are critical, these are very central doctrines. And we should, obviously the 
the whole premise behind this class is that we should pursue everything that God teaches in his word. We want to know everything that God says in his word that he wants us to know. So we pursue theology because it's worth pursuing because we value everything that God says in his word. But thanks be to God, we're not saved by the acquisition of theological knowledge. We're saved by Jesus. We're saved because we put our faith in the gospel. It's a very simple message. It's a message that a child could not only understand, but articulate. So that's where we're, we're primarily going to live this morning. We're going to be talking about this, these utterly central truths that cluster around the doctrine of the person and work of Christ. Person and work both stand together. They can't be divided. Uh, we, it's just as important that we understand and believe truly what the Bible has to say about who Jesus was as that we understand what Jesus did on the cross and all the rest. So the aspects of Christ's work in our approach this morning actually are going to be tucked into our, our study of who he is. So the point is, when we're talking about the, the, the identity between the person and work of Jesus Christ, that they can't be separated, what we're saying is not just anyone can do the work of redemption. There are certain qualifications, if you will, that this redeemer must meet or else he won't be able to redeem us. So Jesus has to be the fully biblical Jesus in order to get this done, in order to be able to say from the cross, it is finished. He had to be a certain way, not just do certain things. So person and work are both very important. In other words, we can have a right doctrine of how God's wrath was satisfied on the cross, but if we misidentify Jesus and we say that he was a great man and a great moral teacher, the gospel goes out the window because we've misidentified the person who was attempting to do the work. And he may have gone to the cross and he may have died, but he didn't accomplish our redemption because he didn't meet the qualifications of what the Bible said a redeemer is going to have to be, what his character is going to have to be like. If you misidentify Jesus and you say that he is not the eternally self-existing second person of the Trinity, one with and equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit in power and glory. We've got trouble on our hands, right? If we say instead with, with Mormons, for example, that Jesus is the firstborn spirit child of Elohim, the, his, his spirit is the product of God the Father's relationship with one of his heavenly wives, we lose the biblical Jesus, and the gospel with it. So person and work have to go together. It's not enough to be clear that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Our confidence when Jesus says it is finished is that the one who said it is finished was capable of saying it is finished. In other words, just think about it this way. If the person on Jesus is right, the guy on the cross next to Jesus shouted it is finished, no big deal, right? Every Nobody cares. Nobody sings about that guy saying it is finished because he's not qualified to do anything. But when Jesus says it is finished, it births a thousand songs of God's people over the course of history because the, the one who said it is finished was capable of finishing it. He was, he was God himself in the flesh. All right. So we're getting into person and work this morning. But the biblical portraits that we find of Jesus can be confusing because there are different kinds of texts describing Jesus and his work. One of, the, one of the reasons it can be confusing is Old Testament prophecies 
often don't clearly distinguish the purpose and nature of Christ's first coming with that of his second coming. I think this is part of the reason why the religious leaders in the first century rejected Jesus, is they were reading places in Isaiah, for example, where the government will be on his shoulders and he's going to establish a kingdom of peace, and they think, this guy is not doing that. He's not rubbing shoulders with government officials. He doesn't seem to have clout with governmental structures. He's just kind of going around and making converts and disciples. That's not going to work. He's not going to be powerful enough to get the Roman rule off of our backs. And so they're sizing this up and saying, prophecies, no. But what they're doing is confusing the second work, the second coming of Jesus, in which that does happen, right? Where the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he reigns forever. That's the second coming, not the first. But they were confused by that because sometimes when you read the texts, it's got all of that jumbled in the same passage, What's going to be happening with the suffering servant and then his conquering of the kingdoms of this world? Those can all be put into the same passage. So it can be confusing when we're reading that. Another reason this can be confusing is some biblical descriptions of Jesus highlight more of his divine power, his kingly reign. These are the texts where Jesus is large and in charge, right? He's commanding winds and waves and demons and just he's in control, of everything, and he's authoritative with his word and his voice. And then there are other texts that sound like a completely different person, where he sounds, he's tired, and he's thirsty, and he's hungry, and, and he can't pick up the crossbeam and walk any further. He seems frail and subject to human weaknesses and limitations. And so that can be confusing. Which one is he? What is going on? So let's talk about Jesus' humanity because this is very, very important that we get the fact that Jesus Christ is fully man. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, follow along with me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. You do know that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, could have given a blood test. And his blood would have been no different than any other human blood. It may have been O positive. It may have been A negative. Who knows? But it would have been human blood. They would have put it under a, a microscope and they wouldn't have said, this is a completely different kind of blood. No, Hebrews 2 says he took of the same kind of flesh, the same kind of blood that we have, in order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that is God's people. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In how many respects? Every respect. So that, so here's a, then, you know, if then, he had to be made in every respect like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Let's just do a quick interpretation of this biblical passage. If Jesus hadn't partaken of the flesh and blood that we have, human flesh and human blood, real humanity in every respect, could he have saved us? No. Because it says he had to do that so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, so that he might make propitiation. You talked about this a bit a couple of weeks ago. Make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those 
who are being tempted. And Hebrews 4.15 is a well-known passage. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ as a man relates to the whole range of human experience except this. This is the one exception. He never sinned. In every other respect conceivable, he was like you and like me. It is a staggering thing to consider the full humanity of Jesus. Now, you know, I think that one of the reasons that Jesus' family didn't believe in him as a savior, Jesus' little brothers didn't put their faith in him until after the resurrection, is because, and, and, and the local people who grew up in his community had a very hard time believing in him. The obvious answer, I think, is because he was normal. He seemed like a normal kid running around the city doing the things that little kids do in our little town, our little village. He seemed very normal. His big brothers, I mean, his smaller, younger brothers just thought he's just, he's Bubby. That's who he is. He's not like God. He's not the second person of the Trinity. He's a normal kid, just like we are. Now, saying Jesus was fully human is one thing, but actually trying to think about what that might have looked like um, is quite another because it's, it almost feels irreverent to think of Jesus toddling down the hall. Yeah, imagine, there, there's Joseph and Mary. It's the big day. Parents have this big day. Big day, they step away. They say, I think he's going to be able to walk. This is the second person of the Trinity in flesh. They back up four steps. Come here. Come here, Jesus. Jesus stumbling. He makes it four steps. They back up seven steps. Come on, try this one, Jesus. Come on. There's Mary and Joseph coaching him, coaching him. He makes it four steps, five steps, topples over, busts his lip on the coffee table. These sorts of things are normal for human beings. If he's going to be like us in every respect, these are the kinds of things that happen. Jesus, they don't say, come here, Jesus, and he picks up and just starts floating. That's, that wouldn't be normal. That wouldn't be like us in every respect. That would be di- different than we are in in every respect, Jesus, Jesus would have experienced these things. He learned language. Imagine that. He wasn't speaking in full sentences from the crib. He wasn't expatiating on theology from the crib. He was cooing like you did. He was drooling like you did. It's, it's a wondrous and staggering thing to contemplate the humility of God in taking on humanity, knowing all that that would involve, knowing he's going to smash his thumb with the hammer, when he learns how to build under his dad's teaching and apprenticeship, he's going to do those kinds of things that humans do. He's going to learn language. and it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a sin to misspell a word. He probably misspelled a word. Ironically, he might have misspelled Yahweh. That may well have happened because he was like us in every respect. Obviously, we don't know the specifics, but what we're given in Scripture is that Jesus' humanness was real, not faked. He experienced the trappings of the fall, the kinds of things that a cursed world serves up to people who live in that world, to human beings who live in that world. And so he was pricked by thorns. These are products of the fall, right? When, when Adam and Eve fell, they said, you're going to be pricked by thorns, 
There's going to be pain in childbirth. There's going to be sweat on your brow. The earth is not just going to give way. It's going to resist you. When Jesus went to go stick a shovel in the ground, it didn't just say, come on in. It resisted him like it resisted every other person in the world. It resisted its maker. Jesus was the maker of the world. He upheld the molecules of his crib by the word of his power because he was fully God. And yet he cooed in that crib and didn't know how to speak yet because he was fully man. Isaiah prophesied in some places that there wouldn't be any noticeable divine features. He said, For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, his deity wasn't everywhere showcased. By and large, his humanity was showcased with peaks and glimpses of deity breaking through, especially in the time of his ministry. But for the most part, when you walked with him, His humanity was shining through. Jesus' human and divine natures are brought together in one person, but clearly in his incarnate life, particularly before his ministry began, his humanness was the prominent feature. Matthew 13, 53 to 56. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Uh, Land coming to his hometown. I don't know what that means. Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this not the, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? In other words, watching Jesus grow up, you wouldn't have expected any signs and wonders. He was a normal kid. They didn't see anything particularly astonishing. Look at this quote from Donald McLeod. I've not found a writer who I'm more affected by when it comes to the humanity of Jesus than Donald McLeod. They looked and saw nothing but a man. There was nothing in his appearance to distinguish him from anyone else. Not a head would have turned as he walked. He looked utterly ordinary. We were a a group from my college. We're traveling around and doing music and representing the school and raising funds for the school. And we went on a trip to England. And we were in England. We were sitting and having our, our fish and chips. Yes. And we're just talking about God, and it's a bunch of us, so it makes a good bit of noise. And one British gentleman comes up to our table angry, and he just lays into us and says, if God is real, if Jesus is real, how come we don't know anything about his upbringing, his life as a child? How come we got no information, precious little, basically no information on his upbringing? Wouldn't you want to know? where he came from, kind of his stock in the early years, what things were like as he developed as a boy, if he was really God's son, how come there's none of that? And honestly, to this day, I really can't see how that question is all that relevant. I, I don't see that as a particular threat to Christian faith that I don't know the early years. But I, my guess as to the answer is because there was precious little to record. If we had the diaries of Jesus, it would look like your diary, except for one thing. There would be no sin. He would never talk about how he hated his parents or he was really mad because they never let him do this. He wouldn't have any sin. But his diary would probably look like eight Cheerios. They are my favorite. 
stubbed toe climbing trees with friends. I love sycamore trees. Learned three more Bible verses. I love God's word. Built my first chair. Papa Joseph will show me how to make a table tomorrow. It would have looked just like you would read it and you wouldn't go, oh, this is the diary of God. It would look like the diary of, of an average Hebrew boy. John 4, Jesus sits on a well. He's exhausted. He's come into the city of Samaria. Interestingly, he has to sit down and his friends can keep walking. They had more stamina than Jesus did. And so Jesus says, I'm just going to sit down here. And they say, we're going to go into town. They go into town. They buy food. They bring it back to Jesus. They say, you need to eat. You really, you need to eat. You're weak. You're tired. This is Jesus sitting on a well. He's not faking like he's tired. He's really tired. When Jesus was carrying the cross beam that he himself made, he made all the trees in the universe. He's the maker of all things, and he's carrying this cross beam, and he cannot take one more step. It's not a fake fall. He stumbles. He falls. Simon of Cyrene has to pick up the cross beam to help the second person of the Trinity get to the cross. It's an amazing thing. Hugh Martin, this Donald McLeod quote, Hugh Martin described Christ as not drawing on his divine might and energies, but denying himself their exercise and withdrawing from the field of action those prerogatives and powers of deity, which in the twinkling of an eye might have scattered 10,000 worlds and hells of enemies. And yet you watch Simon of Cyrene have to pick up the crossbeam for him. And what are you thinking when you're in the crowd? This can't be God. Look how weak he is. He couldn't even get the beam to the hill. He died before the other two. They came around to break the legs. The other two were still alive. Our Savior was dead. His strength was failing. When the Apostle Paul wanted to show a self-serving church of Philippi what humility was all about. This was a divided church. There were of in-house fighting going on. And Paul says, let nothing be done out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but look to the interest of others and not to the interest of yourself. And then Apostle Paul thinks of a story, and it's a true story. And the story that comes to mind is the story of, of, of Christ who, who came from heaven to earth and took up our humanity. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. How? By taking up human form, by, by taking up our flesh and blood, by cooing, by hobbling down the hall, by drooling, by depending on his mother's milk, by being rejected by his people, by being spit upon and beaten by soldiers he could have, he could have killed in an instant with no exertion. That's how he humbled himself and he died naked on a cross. He was stripped naked. Second century bishop of Sardis named Melito wrote and he said he who hung the earth is hanging he who fastened 
the universe has been fastened to a tree. It's an unprecedented murder. The sovereign is there on the cross and doesn't even have a garment to hide him from view. This is our humble king in his humility before all. Never once, Donald McLeod writes, never once does he in his own interest or in his own defense break beyond the parameters of humanity. He had no place to lay his head, but he never built himself a house. He was thirsty, but he provided himself no drink. He was assaulted by all the powers of hell, but he did not call on his legions of angels. The power which carried the world, stilled the tempest and raised the dead, was never used to make his own conditions of service easier. Hmm. Neither was the prestige he enjoyed in heaven exploited to relax the rules of engagement. The full humanity of Jesus is utterly, absolutely necessary for our redemption because as Hebrews said, he had to be made this way so that he could save us. If he was only fully God, we would not be saved. If Jesus floated down the hall, if he parted the kiddie pool at the local recreation center, that would be really cool, but we would still be dead in our sins. He had to be fully man. Jesus Christ is fully God. The Christmas carol that we sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. There are these moments in which God's, Jesus' deity breaks through and we see who he truly is and we see his, his identity, his kind of self-awareness as he comes into his ministry. He is aware. He reads Luke 4. He is aware. I am that man in Isaiah 61 who is going to open the prison doors and let him free and lay my hands on the blind and they will see. He knew, he had a self-awareness that this is who I am. In, all, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Colossians 1.19 says. And in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. There's distinction in the Trinity. Word was with God There's identity in the Trinity, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This speaks of Jesus' pre-existence. In other words, what we talked about, the full humanity is still true, so don't leave that behind, but the number of birthday candles on Jesus' cake didn't tell the whole story because He wasn't 13. (laughs) He was 13 in in terms of His humanity, but He was the Ancient of Days. He pre-existed. He had glory with the Father in days gone by, in, in years past, before the beginning of creation. Your father, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You remember aseity? Talked about aseity, God's self-existence, his independence. Jesus invokes the name of aseity. He invokes the sacred covenant name of God in the Old Testament when he says, I am. Remember, Moses, tell them I am has sent you. And Jesus doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. He is talking about his transcendence over the bounds of time. He is the timeless, eternal, self-existent God. And they got the point. 
You know how they got the point? How can we tell they got the point? They picked up rocks, yes. And he didn't say, no, 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 you misunderstood. No, he ducked and hid and ran away, right? They got the point and they got it well. Jesus was claiming he was making himself equal with God. He was invoking the sacred name and self-defining and ascribing that name to himself. He takes that title as his own. John 1 speaks of Christ's full deity. The word was with God. The word was God. This is a Trinity reference. There's distinction in the Trinity so we can say that the word was with God and there is unity in the Trinity so we can say Jesus was and is God. John 1 goes not only to identify Jesus as God, but to locate Jesus in Genesis chapter 1. Right? The Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. John 1 says, guess who else was there? Jesus Christ. The one walking through Galilee was there on day one when the worlds were made. Matter of fact, he wasn't just there as a spectator. He was active. Everything that came into being came into being because he is the creator. With God, he together in the triune God, they created the world. Hebrews chapter 1. As long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He created the world through the second person of the Trinity. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus didn't become fully God. He was fully God in his pre-incarnate existence. He was fully God and fully man in his incarnate existence. And he now reigns as fully God and fully man in heaven. He is fully God. And he upheld all the molecules of the universe while he was in the crib. He upheld his own mother's molecules while he was nursing. It's an amazing thing, the mystery. Christology has got to be the most mind-blowing of all the theological departments. The study of Jesus Christ is an absolutely astonishing study. In a field of astonishing studies, it is It is amazing. This passage in Hebrews 1 presents Christ as an all-sufficient, a comprehensive redeemer. He is prophet, priest, and king. You may not have noticed in Hebrews 1, there were all of the offices of the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. The primary offices of ministry in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, kings, they were all dead in streets. None of them actually got anything done for God's people in terms of effecting transformation. Jesus fulfills every office. He is the consummate prophet who, through whom God has spoken decisively. You see that? I don't have verse references there, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He's the consummate prophet. He's the great high priest whose sacrifice purified his people once and for all. You see, after making purification for sins, he sat down. Where did he sit? He's the king. He sat at the right hand of majesty on high, and he reigns over all. The Westminster Catechism picks up on these themes of prophet, priest, and king. They love these ideas of how Christ fulfills all the Old Testament scriptures with reference to his ministry. And the Westminster picks up and unfolds the beautiful vision of how Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament offices and prophecy. As a family, we're big fans 
of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We love the Westminster Confession, and we read it together, and we study it together, and we try to memorize parts of it because these guys were on to something. They loved, they loved the Bible, and they got together and said, how do we train our families in a way that they will know the Bible, the big ideas, grasp the importance of what Scripture is saying to us? So I'm going to close with a kind of Westminster-styled devotional on Christ as prophet, priest, and king, as Christ as the comprehensive redeemer, all-sufficient redeemer. The question that the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks is, how is Christ our redeemer? The answer, as our redeemer, Christ is prophet, priest, and king in both his humiliation and his exaltation. And then it begins to ask specifically, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that Christ is our prophet? How is Christ a prophet? Answer, as a prophet, Christ reveals the will of God to us for our salvation by his word and spirit. That's what the prophets did in the Old Testament. They revealed the will of God to God's people. They showed them the path of righteousness, the way that God wanted his people to walk. They clarified God's will and the way of salvation. They pointed God's people to the truth. And, and Jesus stood, and he didn't just gesture toward the truth as Isaiah would. Isaiah would gesture in the direction of truth. They would give some semblance of what God was saying, and they would give some semblance of the Messiah who was coming. But Jesus did far more than that. Jesus didn't say the truth is coming and here's some of the truth. He said, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one else who's coming. I am the one through whom you will come into relationship with God. He pointed to himself. Hebrews said, in times past, God had revealed himself through diverse means. But in these last days, we have the consummate revelation of God. And it's not through Isaiah, it's not through Jeremiah. It's he is spoken to us by his son. So Israel knew about the truth century after century. And in the fullness of time, we read in John 1, Jesus comes and he comes full of grace and truth. He's going to reveal the truth of God to his people, the way of salvation. How do you see when Jesus is is fulfilling the office of a prophet? Very simply, is he speaking? Whenever Jesus is speaking, he's clarifying the kingdom. He's clarifying what worship is. The Father is seeking worshipers that will worship in spirit and the truth. Every time he opens his mouth, he is, he is forth-telling and foretelling the glory of, of the kingdom of God. Where every prophet in the Old Testament fell short of bringing God's people into the knowledge and experience of the truth, Jesus would speak. And he would be able to say what Jeremiah never could say. John 10, I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Remember when Jeremiah wanted to quit? You know why he wanted to quit? Because nobody was listening. And prophet after prophet after prophet experienced that very same frustration. And Jesus stands before Israel and he says, you, you, you crucified, you killed all the guys that we sent to bring you the revelation of the truth and you killed them one after another. You axed them off the paper because you're an obstinate and stubborn people. And Jesus says, when I speak, they're going to come. God's people, because I'm not just any prophet. I'm the consummate prophet. He brings his people into the fold of God. Christ, our priest. How is Christ a priest? As a priest... Christ offered himself up once as a sacrifice for us to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and he continually intercedes 
for us. Jesus perfectly fulfills the role of the Old Testament priest, and you can see that throughout the New Testament. Primarily, this is one of the great themes of the book of Hebrews, and you can look at some select verses there. Hebrews is making an argument that if the bloodshed and sacrifices will ever come to an end, if God's people will ever be internally purified and have their sins paid for, Hebrews argues we're going to have to have a perfect high priest. And you know when Hebrews bursts into song? Hebrews chapter 8, after saying, this is the kind of high priest we're going to need, and this is what he could do, this is what he would affect. And in, in Hebrews 8 verse 1, it says, now here's what the point of all of that is. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. The high priest that we have needed is the high priest that we have. Jesus fulfilled the offices of the Old Testament priests. No more sacrifices need to be offered. Why? Because Jesus offered one, once and for all, sacrifice that completely purified God's people, covered in atoned sins, and internally has accomplished salvation, objectively has accomplished salvation for his people. Any human priest who presumes to add one more sacrifice to Jesus' perfect sacrifice insults Christ. You see that? It insults the sufficiency of his sacrifice as the great high priest. It gives the impression that his sacrifice 2,000 years ago wasn't quite enough to fully atone for God's people. So we need one more sacrifice. We need to represent Christ's sacrifice or re-offer his sacrifice. Jesus cried out, it is finished. It's a basic biblical interpretation here. When Jesus said it is finished, he didn't mean it's not finished. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it is finished. Sins have been paid for. Close the altars. Close the temple. The pigeons, the goats, the lambs are safe forever. Let them wander in the fields happily eating your grass, but they don't need to die because we have a perfect lamb. We have a perfect priest. Jesus has fulfilled this. One theologian famously wrote, the resurrection was the father's amen to the sons. It is finished. It seals the fact that Jesus did accomplish it. Christ our king. How is Christ a king? Oh, I love this. As a king... Christ brings us under his power, rules and defends us, and restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies. Remember the text that we just referred to about the humiliation of Jesus, the the humbling of Jesus when he takes up the form of a servant, comes in the likeness of men, taking on human form, being found in human appearance. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what was the reward? The next word is therefore, because he took on his full humanity and accomplished our redemption, therefore, he is exalted. God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will confess and give glory to him that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our king. Jesus' kingly status peeks through the veil of his humanity from time to time. If you want to see Jesus' 
kingship. Well, it's obvious now. You read the, the epistles, you can see Jesus. He is in the heavens. He is seated at God's right hand. But you can even see it peeking through in his incarnate ministry. If you want to see that, watch what happens when he speaks to chaotic winds and waves. Watch what happens when he interacts with demons. Watch how they shudder. Have you come to torment us? Where do you want us to go? To the pigs? Can we go to the pigs? He orders everyone around. He is speaking as king. You are hearing in those texts the kingly voice of Jesus Christ. What he says goes. He has an authoritative voice even in the gospels. And when Jesus rises from the dead, God publicly declares him and installs him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. God has exalted him. No wonder then, in Matthew 28, Jesus stands before his disciples and says, all authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Why do we go? Because I'm the king. And I say, go. And and I'm going to make this place a place where my kingdom begins to run like wildfire. You go, you bring this gospel of the kingdom and watch what I do. Matthew 28 is Jesus standing in his kingly office. No wonder Paul says God commands all men everywhere to repent. He's fixed today on which he'll judge the world by this king, by this man, Jesus Christ. So Jesus' person and work are bound together as our redeemer. He is prophet, the consummate prophet. He is priest, the final priest. He is king the king of over all the kings, the Lord over all the lords. No prophet in the Old Testament could overcome the stubbornness of God's people. Jesus would succeed where they failed. No priest could offer a sacrifice that would cleanse God's people and remove all guilt once and for all. Jesus would succeed where they failed. No king could usher in a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. Jesus would succeed where they fail. And you want to get some sense of what the consummation of Jesus' kingdom looks like? Come back when we talk about the return of Jesus. That's going to be a glorious week to talk about the ushering in, the moment where everyone looks to the eastern skies and sees him coming in his glory, white horse and all. It's an awesome thing. If we read the New Testament in light of the old, we're going to see Jesus fulfilling not only those, But all of the motifs, all of the images of the Old Testament were pointing forward to Jesus. He is the new Moses who leads his people out of slavery to sin and Satan. Think about it. He is the new Joshua who will bring his people safely across the Jordan to the land flowing with milk and honey. He is the great high priest whose sacrifice has covered all the sins of his people once for all. He is the Lamb of God to whom the sins of God's people were transferred and he was sent out of the city and slain for us. He is the new temple, which was destroyed but raised three days later so that all who repent have free access to the presence of God and the veil has been torn. He is the temple. He died, he rose, he lives, he reigns, his throne is immovable, his kingdom is unshakable. Forgiveness, justification, assurance, and final glory Those are things that we experience as believers, and they are certain. And the reason they are certain is because Jesus is a comprehensive redeemer. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are glorious. And we can't wait to sing to you moments from now. 
to sing the praises of the one who is the second Adam who created a new template for humanity that we could leave the cursed inheritance that we came into and we could be bought out from under slavery. Oh, Lord, may your name be exalted in our hearts, not just our mouths. And may these truths so permeate our minds and our thoughts that we become a grateful, bold, happy people, happy to be in the service of the greatest king in the universe, the only king, the only wise God. To him be glory forever. Amen.